Welcome to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Before we get to the Sean Tully and Zach Player episode, just a reminder to sign up for our promotion with Cricket Shirts, Adele Golf, and the Congress Hotel. Visit our Twitter page, Instagram, or newsletter to enter for your chance to win a trip to Austin for the Dell Match Play Championship. I went to this tournament last year. It was an awesome event, and Austin is one of my favorite cities in the whole world. The prize package includes tickets to the tournament, a full bag of clubs from Austin Basie Dell, two nights at the South Congress Hotel, a $500 gift certificate to Cricket Shirts, and airfare to Austin. Now, without further ado, here's Sean Tully and Zach Blair. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we are joined by Zach Blair, podcast regular, and then the superintendent at the Meadow Club, noted golf historian, and the godfather of width, Sean Tully. Sean, welcome on. Thank you. I feel like I owe you royalties, you know, width and (laughs) angles. It's kind of a ripoff from the man that's you know been preaching with for years. How does it feel to have uh, an era where with is becoming almost embraced? Um, it's been great to see. Um, it's it's taken a long time watching um, all the tournament golf that we see on TV, where all the bunkers are lost in the rough. Um, I feel like uh, it feels really good to see that. Uh, we need that in the game today for sure. For the for. Um, golf to be enjoyable um for all all levels of play yeah we just zach and i just finished playing up here at meadow club alistair mckenzie's uh first design lots of width zach what'd you think yeah i've been lucky enough to play up here a couple of times uh played here in college about every year i was at byu so it's always fun to come back so i knew we had to definitely hit this spot up on the on the Blair Wish Project, San Francisco voyage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good one. We uh, we've hit up a bunch of uh, different golf courses, but a few Alistair McKenzie's. Um, Sean, how do you? Was it when you got this job in two thousand that you really became enamored with McKenzie, or did it start before then? Uh, it definitely started before then. Um, I've always he just. Uh, Knowing what he was able to do and seeing pitchers at that time, um, living in Wisconsin and not being out here, um, just seeing the golf courses and and knowing what I was what I was seeing and and uh, wanting to embrace that a little bit more, um, had to come out to California to see it though. Mm-hmm. That's um, when uh, how did you get into golf? Like being from Wisconsin and. Yeah, this is my first job um, in in high school. My brother, who's a superintendent in Chicago, um, was supposed to go interview for a job, and he wasn't. He was 
woke up that morning and was like, I'm not going in. And for some reason, I said, I'm going in. So I went in to interview for the job, and uh, the superintendent was quite confused um, <laughs> when I said my name was Sean Tully and not Ryan Tully. But uh, I'm very thankful that he didn't want to go to work that day or go to his interview. And, uh, you know, the same golf course that my dad worked at, and um, the superintendent knew my dad, so it was I think he was going to hire us either way. Um, but it's a, a he little... just got a different Tully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what course was that at? Um, Delbrook in Del- Delvin, Wisconsin. It's an old Fallis brother, one of the Fallis brothers. I haven't had a chance to figure that one out, but one one degree of separation from Old Tom Morris, which kind of got me started. Mm-hmm. So that you have this, you know, directory of historical findings and all the stuff. Did as a kid, were you really into history, and is that did it just naturally lend itself into golf? Yes, I, I've always, you know, I don't read fiction. I'm, I'm a nonfiction guy, so <laughs> I like the facts. And um, my dad, just being in the game, he was a really good golfer, um, qualified for the Greater Milwaukee Open as an amateur, and uh, just his love of the game, my grandfather's love of the game, it keeps me close to both of those of my family in the game, just being good on the golf course. Parents in the game. That's like you, Z. Yeah, it's always nice to have, uh, you know, you get to spend time with them. And then it just kind of like, like Tolly said, it kind of keeps you close to them. So it's cool. It's definitely a neat sport that way. So, Sean, you've got a lot of different things from a historical and you found a bunch of things. What's like the coolest piece of golf history or artifact or information that you've uncovered in your in your time Uh, that's a good question um probably just learning more about the evolution of golf and what how good or how not so good some of the early stuff was Uh, pebble beach when it first opened it kind of got lambasted to some degree and uh herbert fowler was brought in almost within within a year of the course opening and he drew up plans and finding finding his plans and his uh his description of the golf course and his changes was pretty pretty amazing to find that when i came across the uh the information about billy bell doing some of the bunker work at san francisco golf club was pretty amazing and uh you know again you know getting back to width i i am a fan of width and fairways and I found an article from, I think, 1934 where it finally spelled out what the width was in golf at that time frame with the low end being 40 yards and the high end being 60. Um, I think we have a lot to learn still in golf on what constitutes good golf. And it doesn't have to be off the tee to be challenging. And, you know, it's about angles and having the opportunity to find that and, uh, we don't need 22-yard fairways. It, so with the modern game, the ball goes further, sometimes more offline. Is Do you think width is about the same, or should it be wider to accommodate for the longer distances people are hitting? I'm always going to say more width is better. It can, it can be challenging. I mean, I don't – I can already say I don't hit the ball very far, but – if you hit the ball online and where you need to hit it, then you're in a good place. 
And if you miss hit your shot or or have some factors that you haven't factored into your shot, and you're going to be more offline, further offline than you need to be, and uh, find new new and different challenges. Hopefully, yeah, we uh, we played Zach and I played a golf course uh, today that isn't known by many and uh, doesn't have a lot of width. Northwood, a nine-hole Mackenzie golf course uh, in Del Monte, or is it Del? Del Rio. Monte Rio. Monte Rio. It's a cool little town. Is that one of the, you know, golf's biggest kind of tragedies and where it is right now compared to what it could be? Well, Sharp Park is always the easy um, go-to for that. You know, the the course has suffered with a lot of um, the river, uh, the Russian River going over its banks quite a few times. I think the 20 feet over the eighth green. So it gets... When the water, when the river goes over there, it's over. And uh, they've, you know, Ed Bale, the, the superintendent there, he's been there for, for a number of years. Um, he he could tell you how many times he's had to rebuild that green there um, and a couple of the other holes. So it's, they're lucky, we're lucky to even have the course uh-huh. with that much water. It's such a cool place. It's uh, in this little town and you just drive up and you never would have expected what got Mackenzie up there to do that project. Well, the, the story that, that I understand it is, is um, John or Jack Neville, a noted amateur player um, played, a, you know, had his hand in design was the one that introduced Hunter and Mackenzie to the property. There's been quite a few people have done research and we still have not found there's some people that feel there's a connection to the Bohemian Club, which is right there as well. So far, that's the story that, that we're sticking with um, at the moment. But there, we haven't found anything that really is cut and dry. You know, I think that place has like a sneaky more width than we're giving it credit for, though. Because like we didn't hit one tree out there the entire day, realistically. One. one. But I think the trees are so massive that it just looks extremely tight. There's um, that visual. Yeah. Especially watching the drone footage you guys did today. Um, it just makes it look even tighter. But I also saw you guys hit the ball today, and the trees weren't a, weren't going to be an issue no matter what. You guys were playing really good. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that it, I guess that is almost a, a thing with scale. It goes to scale. How I mean, with width, how important is it to have matching scale? It, it's really important. I mean, you know, we have fairly good scale here with our bunkers. You know, they aren't super big out here, but they fit and they feel good with the contours that we have. You know, another good example would be San Francisco Golf Club. You know, the scale of that property is so huge. And you have some of the bunkers on three, uh, that big, the one that runs short right, um, off your tee shot is a great bunker and it ties in with the bunkers behind it a lot of it is scale and you don't need big bunkers if you layer your bunkers and i and we talked about that quite a few times with our bunkers out here how mckenzie used strategic bunkering to move you around the golf course and you know we have some of them lost in trees um you know the tee shot on number two is one that it, it would be a good example and then your second shot into number four here at Meadow Club, where you're looking, and you have the bunkers stacked up behind the green from you know four green, five green, two green, and even fourteen if you stand in the right spot. I noticed that with Golden Age architects, they 
layered greens on top of each other so well, but then those bunkers and they catch your eye. And sometimes, you know, we live in this day and age of technology where visual deception is a bit lost because we play with range finders. We always know what that, what the exact yardage is and we can shoot bunkers, but was McKenzie the greatest in your opinion at layering and stacking bunkers on and making, you know, deceiving the eye? Uh, well, I would say yes. Well, obviously, given his background with camouflage um, and trying to, to, he is challenging your eye in, in a lot of ways, uh, more so than, you know, other architects were privy to. Um, the challenge, you know, we talk about yardages, and you, if, if you hit a tee shot, it's 175 yards, and the bunker's at 160. But we don't like bunkers by nature. Um, we're, we don't want to be in them. So no matter how many few bunkers or how many more bunkers are in the background, your your mind may know the yardage, but it still is looking at those bunkers going, I don't like the bunkers, I don't like the bunkers. So it's a mind game. He's playing with your mind and just trying to make it look harder than it actually is. You guys have been working with Mike DeVries since – 1999 you got here 2000 um it's been you know you've kind of been chipping away at it a lot and i obviously a lot of clubs in america don't necessarily have the financial resources to do full blown restorations right out of the gate or even member buy-in to do them what advice do you have for a club that might be trying to start the restoration and really improvement process like First of all, it's been really great to work with Mike. Um, his vision and, and um, understanding of what we have here has really helped push this program, our, our restoration program along. To get to your question, what, what has really worked for us is figuring out which hole, which is our fifth hole here, um, has the most documentation and being able to draw from the pictures and state the historical nature of that hole. Um, it's a, a copy of the Eden hole from St. Andrews, and the importance of it and the scale and scope of the of the design and uh, trying to get back to that. And we did it over, you know, tried to gain the members' trust of those that may not understand what we're trying to do. Some of that was with tree removal, which can be hard. I mean, there's, um, you know, when most of our members joined here, there was the course had become more of a parkland course um, and had lost that meadow definition that is in the the name of the club so for some of them it's been pretty hard to see our trees come down but it's at the same time it's been pretty amazing to see and be able to see more of the golf course and understand the design and the thoughts that went into it but um, you know just trying to figure out where you can best make your case and and have the history work in your favor to tell you to tell the story and make the, the work that you're doing work for you. And there's obviously there's different ways to do the work. And when we first started our restoration, the process was trying to figure out what would work. An intern that was working for Mike at the time, Mark Tholley, who now works with Kyle Phillips, did a dissertation at Arizona on how to best do a restoration. So he went around the country and and interviewed and and you know came up with let's the program that we ended up going with was doing a couple holes each year for the minimal impact. Um, our members love playing Meadow Club. And, you know, we, we were not going to shut the course down for 
for anything. They love this course as they should. And the the program went over a five-year period, six-year period, you know, with minimal impact and the turnaround was pretty quick. We by the time we got to the end the last year, our process was was really good. Zach, you played this course a couple of times in college. How have you noticed the change over the years? When we played or when I was in school, some of the stuff was already done. Um, you know, some of the big changes like 15 and 13, they'd kind of taken down the trees and they'd done a lot of the bunker work. I mean, most of it, honestly. Um, now, you know, they're really working on the aprons kind of around the green, kind of promoting that ground game and everything. And I mean, it's, it's even better than, you know, when I played it four or five years ago. So it's, it's always fun to come back. It's, it's cool to see a walking through your clubhouse. There's so many old photos and I think you're lucky in that they have you to that finds all this stuff, but also that there's so much documentation available because you see it was a meadow. I mean, there's no trees, there's nothing. And there's all of a sudden all these angles and different options to play. Like, you know, today I played with a hickory driver, which was unbelievable. I was all of a sudden hanging long irons in, but like on some holes I was playing way right. And uh, I played into another fairway to set up an angle because I knew I was going to have like a four iron and I needed to get an open way in. And, you know, you're getting so close to being where you need to be, but there's just still a few more trees to go. I imagine working somewhere where you, where you know the ones you want them to go, like coming in and seeing them every day, like that's got to get just frustrating. <laughs> there is some frustration there. Um but at the end of the day, you know, as, as frustrated as, as you know, being a historian, it's it's really hard to not feel that way and knowing how good the golf course was. It's just my job to educate the golfers at, as best I can to get them to understand what we're trying to do from an agronomic standpoint and then, you know, trying to give them the best product, the best golf course they can. In some ways, we have some responsibility to honoring McKenzie and his work, well, and Hunters, we, he always kind of gets dropped off. But, uh, you know, the work they did here was exceptional. And, uh, you know, they went from here, they worked at Cypress and Pasatiempo and Valley Club. And all those courses are must-plays and must-sees for anybody that wanna, wants to see it, see some of their work. And um, it's just great that, it, you know, Metal Club's their first place in the connection with um, the old course at St. Andrews with his design here. Um, it it shines a little bit more with uh, as the, the course opens up. So, what got Metal Club? For those that don't know, is the first McKenzie design in America. Did he come to America to specifically design Metal Club, or did he come here for like how, what got him over there? Well, it was more of his trip to Australia. So it was a stopping off. You're gonna make. I think it was he met with. Um, Perry Maxwell, and they traveled across and stopped in Oklahoma to see his course there. And then he got out here, and at that time, Robert Hunter was, by reading through some of the correspondence, he was more or less acting as a, an agent for McKenzie and was trying to get him work um, while he was traveling through. And, you know, there's other stories, but that's 
doc, this is the best documented one. Uh, there were some stories about McDonald Smith being involved in the process, but from what I can tell, he was more of a traveling pro at that time. Um, may not have even have been in the area, but um, Hunter has it in. I've got it in his writing, the in correspondence that I found between him and uh, one of our founding members. So it was pretty cool to find that. So I, I asked this question to Jim Urbina. If you could have either Robert Hunter, you're building a golf course tomorrow and you can bring him back from time. You could have Robert Hunter or Perry Maxwell as your associate. Which one are you taking? I'm, I know much more about Robert Hunter and I don't know how much architecture talk we would have because I would be asking him all about all his socialist tendencies and um, hanging out with um, Mark Twain and almost being killed in New York in a bombing um, where he was supposed to give a talk. But it feels like Perry Maxwell was a little, a little more um, closer to the, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but more refrained, more religious, I'll say that. I'm, I was trying not to go there, but you know, just looking at some of the books that Perry Maxwell was reading, it's it sounds like um, I don't know if I would have been it wouldn't have been as enlightening a conversation with him. But to work, it would be great to work with both. I having just seen Old Town um, this last year or almost two years now, that is amazing the work that he was able to do there and the work that Corin Crenshaw did. But um, it's kind of similar to the work you guys are doing here. Yeah, here. yeah. I mean, I mean, the width that they have there, again, here we go. Uh, the width on the, the last couple holes, you know, 17, 18, 9, and whatever the other hole is there. I mean, it's just amazing with that double green coming in and the tee shot up the hill. I mean, I just I stood out there for way too long. It was just an amazing – I didn't want to leave. It was just amazing there. But Robert Hunter gets it just because of I've done way more research on Robert Hunter, mm-hmm. and it's he's he's fascinating. So most of your research has been centered around California golf. McKenzie. I try to I, I try to keep it to California, but <laughs> if anybody knows the guys that are that know me are laughing because I've helped out. I, what I try to do is I do all my research and then I just keep finding things and finding things. And, you know, if, if I know somebody at the course, I'll send it to them if it's really good. I, I Chris Tritterbaugh, when he was at Northland, I sent him a picture of the 18th green there. And he was like, I've never seen this picture before. This is before so-and-so did this and that. And, you know, I just love to be – my my. I just love to share the information because my, my goal is to – if I do go to Northland – it's going to be better because the superintendent there knows a little bit more about the course and through the club, they can make their golf course better. I want to, as a historian, I want to see more of the history, more of the architecture and not see all the changes that have been made to the negative. I want to see the changes to the positive. And I feel like the superintendent should be knowledgeable. Um, I agree with Kyle Hegland in his wonderful podcast, uh, (laughs) superintendent should know about golf course architecture and understand it and the relevance of whoever designed their golf course. I think it's important. I got a question. Uh, what are a couple restoration projects or a couple courses that have restored, you know, their courses back to the original 
the originality of the course that you think have done really well? And then what are a couple that you would really like to see do a complete restoration? Old Town was amazing. I mean, I again, that was really good. Um, Valley Club with their restoration work and their turf changes with the Bermuda grass. I went out there and played. I, I didn't even play it. I walked it in February of 2015, and it was amazing, the work that they have done out there. Um, um, L.A. Country Club. I'm a little more California-centric, obviously. I don't get out there too far, but Cal Club is wonderful. But, you know, to speak to the courses I would love to see restored, Riviera would be amazing. Crystal Downs, you know, just squeezing out a little bit more McKenzie there would be incredible. But, you know, Sharp Park would be amazing. That the front nine out there, the original front nine, if anybody's ever looked at it, if they haven't, you should look at it. It's an amazing routing around that uh, the lagoon, the Laguna Salada. Um, really amazing. Um, you know, just, it, it almost doesn't matter what course, though. I mean, I, to me, it's widening the fairways, reducing the rough, slowing the greens down, and just getting back to enjoying the game anybody just restoring that golf course to those features because the the green speeds are too fast the rough is too long there's too much rough and it just goes we're, we've gotten so far away from how simple the game can be with trying to make it harder and try to make it tournament golf i mean i understand it from the tournament side um, seeing how far they hit the ball and this and that but uh, we don't need to make it harder for the, the day-to-day golfers, and we've done a really good job of doing that, and we need people to enjoy the game. Isn't it way more economical, though, to rebuild a green than just to slow them down? We had a funny conversation about stimp meters earlier today. And how uh, the USGA started manufacturing them and, and giving them to people, but then they don't, you were saying they don't tell the, the stint yeah. meter reading of the US Open. Yeah. I mean, it, the stint meter is, I, I'm a little too infatuated with the stint meter for a lot of different reasons, but it's just become what, what it shouldn't have been is a speed meter. You know, when the USGA almost came, when they first rolled it out, they were going to call it the speed meter. And they pulled back on that. And uh, it's, it's a dangerous tool. And, you know, there's people are going to gravitate to it for different reasons. And, you know, I'm just nervous having people out on, a, out on my golf course or anybody else's golf course trying to understand how to use it uh, without any formal training. I mean, you can read the pamphlet, but when you get on that green and you're rolling the, green, the ball out there, it's, there's a little bit of a – there's more science to it than it sounds. And uh, – we just we need to understand golfers need to understand that the faster the greens get the you know, more hole locations are lost uh, more time they're going to spend on the course if they like to four putt you know all the power to them but i'd rather have more hole locations and more enjoyable rounds and uh, getting around and playing more golf it's amazing how many people don't even fully under i mean like they don't even come close to actually understanding green speeds You'll sit there and you guys, yeah, the greens are rolling 11 today. And I'm sitting there going like, they're maybe like a nine. Like 
people don't understand how fast like a 10 yeah. is. And, you know, no matter, you know, no matter who I talk to as a superintendent, there's what, what I try to do when a member asks me or a golfer, um, if they ask me what the green speed is, I'll ask them what they think it is first. And invariably it'll be slower than what the actual number is. And we have a range that we try to hit here so that our members don't have to ask. They, they know that it's within a range of 10.9 to 11.3. And it's been moving up. Um, green speed in the, in the United States has been moving up. When they first took readings in 1977-78 with the USGA, the average green speed out of 700, over 700 courses tested was six and a half feet. I'd be very interested, and I'm, I'm hoping to, to um, do some research uh, with Micah Woods. We've, we're just started to talk about it to try and figure out what the average green speed in the United States is today. I think it would be very interesting to, to see the numbers. I think it, I might start selling signs. You just made me think of it, of, you know, today's stint meter and have it just be a permanent number. <laughs> no, well, no matter what you do, it's always going to be 11.5. Just every day, 11.5, no matter what. Um, it, it's Zach from a professional side, like, I I remember watching your like a Ryder Cup in in the British Open or the Open Championship and hearing that sometimes the slower greens can really mess with the American players more so than the Europeans. Do you ever see that playing abroad versus here? Yeah, I just think, you know, out there we're so used to putting on really fast greens and you know, you've kind of you kind of stroke your putts to that type of speed, you know, and your whole game's kind of around, you know, your whole game on the green is built around that certain kind of tempo or that style. And then when you get to slower greens and kind of have to change that up to, to kind of hit putts harder instead of stroke them. Uh, yeah, I think it kind of really screws with guys. So do you think it's more would be, would challenge players more to have, slower greens with pins on more slope or faster greens with pins on less slope? I think guys would be able to adapt either way. You know, if, if, if the PJ tour played slow greens, it might mess with guys for a couple of weeks, but then they would, they'd be able to figure it out. So I think it's kind of the best players in the world out there. So they'd get it. So Sean with, Mackenzie, what do you feel is the most underappreciated aspect of his designs? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't think about it like that. Um, <laughs> probably just his use of the routing, um, his routings. You know, some people kind of downplay it uh, for certain courses but you know one of my favorites is uh, just how simple he does it at Meadow Club at Valley Club at Cypress Point where he uses hills and um, you know the hill on nine at Cypress you know how many greens come into that area how many greens come into the area here um, 
that Meadow Club and that Valley Club, you have all these tees built up on the hills, playing from one hill to the next. And what what that really is is, you know, there's intimacy there. So that his, his courses are very intimate until you start adding length. But but there's something else there that it's the um, economic. There's a word, a couple words I'm missing here. But uh, um, where he's designing golf courses with like a the idea of like ease of maintenance the ease of maintenance there's but he he designed you know when he designed bayside that course was built within so many months and opened but then also when you have five greens in one area you can go in and mow all those greens and have five greens mowed by two guys instead of two guys walking all over and getting three three greens mowed so there was a um a degree where he was paying attention and later in his career, you know, Lake Merced just turned up some really cool information where he was offering his services services to help improve their greenkeeping um, work at the course. So, and if you read any later on, he's talking and writing about how greenkeeping has changed over the years. And uh, I mean, the other part is, you know, his connection with Hunter. Everybody is like, it doesn't seem like there should be a connection between those two guys, but. You know, Mackenzie, when he traveled to Australia, he wrote an article for an Australian magazine about the the, um, the United States as a whole from an economy standpoint, you know, what's driving it. So there's so many layers to Mackenzie, as there are with, with Hunter, that we, you know, we just don't, we don't know how deep they went on so many things. But they were very cosmopolitan. I mean, they were a part of so many different things back then. And um, it would have been just really amazing to sit in on some conversations with those guys. So you get to sit in. Let's just say you got to ask Mackenzie one question. What would it be? <laughs> um, that's, yeah. Oh, there's a couple things. It could be a really complex question too. You know, if you want, to, if you need to have multiple parts, I mean, it would be. Yeah, I just got a bunch of stuff going in my head. Um, <laughs> Give the guy a couple questions. Let him yeah. ask a couple let's, let's questions. Just say, yeah, we'll say like you know, what are the what are the things that you you always wonder about? Well, okay, it comes. This one's really simple. It's you know, you got certain architects. They left all the stuff behind and with him the the golden lamb or so to speak of what i want is the routing map for metal club and there's stories that jack fleming had it and then john fleming his son had it and then they're gone and they just disappeared somebody was given the story was they were given to a, a golf writer and myself and bob beck we've been trying to work on this bob beck is uh, a, a noted historian, plays out of Pasatiempo. If we could find those plans, how cool would that be to find a, the actual routing map for Meadow Club in his hand or in uh, Patty Cole's hand or Fleming's or whoever. I don't care. I want to see it. You look at Billy Bell and George Thomas, the work they did, you know, San, Stan, uh, Stanford, Riviera, you know, some of those early courses that they did, they, they have aerial views of the course right after it opened. I don't know if it was on their on their call or what, but 
Um, I wish we had earlier aerials here. And McKenzie was a proponent of aerials, uh, aerial photography. In the 20s, he was telling municipalities or whatever they call them in England, you know, if you guys really want to plan for growth, you need to take aerial photography, photography of um, your villages and hamlets and whatever um, to understand how and where you can grow. I wish people would have taken that advice. We'd all be richer for it uh, with some really early aerial photography. Yeah, the aerials are cool. I I find myself down a rabbit hole all the time, and then you start looking. It just and then you go out to places, and you get you know just frustrating to see how narrow some of the places are. Yeah, I Brian Palmer from Shore Acres called me or he texted me um, right before we left on our trip over there to um, uh, BTME and the uh, British Turfgrass Management um, Exposition. And uh, he's like, Tully, Nassau County's got aerials up from 1926. And I started driving back to the shop, and my cart wasn't going fast enough, so I just parked my cart and started running. And uh, we were on the phone texting back and forth. Like, Have you seen Piping Rock? Have you seen Lido? And, you know, we are going back and forth, and it was, it was awesome. Garden City was, it looked like it was under the knife. I mean, it was... To be able to see these courses in 1926 was amazing. And uh, I still need to get back and look at those. But the last thing I needed was to see those right before, right while I was planning my trip and getting ready to go. One of my buddies came across an aerial of the National and Shinnecock. And Shinnecock's mid under the knife, transitioning from... What year, can I ask? 30. I have it on my computer. I will need to see that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you. So, so it's, uh, it's, you know, it's mid under the knife. So it, like half the holes are Rainer, McDonald, half and the Flynn. holes are Flynn. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, these old aerials are just treasures for, and that makes a good point. You know, if you only have a 41 of Meadow as the youngest. Yeah, that's the earliest one. It, you you went through the Great Depression, your midst World War II, so that's when really a lot of the loss was. Yeah, I mean, for us, the Depression didn't really hurt the club as much. We still had labor, but it, with the, when World War II came, it was the labor was gone, and then we had a in '41 there was a drought. So um, in the aerial, it, it looks like. Um, the farm circles when you're flying over Oklahoma or something where it's just green. They just ran sprinkler heads at T's um, landing areas and fairways. And uh, so it's we're, we're probably missing some fairway bunkers here and there in the aerial because it's just brown. You can't really define things. But, hey, it's an aerial. We got 1941, so still trying to track down some other ones, but we'll see. So I asked this of... of architects all the time I ask this question is what do you wish you know the average member understood more about architecture like one thing that doesn't have to be as hard as most people try to make it for some spyglass what do we know about spyglass it's one of the more challenging hardest tests of golf you'll find in in our area and that's great I mean can we just leave it there and not have to bring it home to our course and have fairways be tightened and trees planted or what have you? 
not every course has to be play one way. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm going to say we need to widen a lot of fairways on a lot of courses, but we do. Um, you know, that's a fact. Well, it's like you watch Zach play. If the fairway is 25 yards wide, it doesn't really matter for you that much. It's not like you're going to miss you. You don't miss many fairways, regardless of how wide it is. Yeah, it just depends on the day, I guess. I mean, <laughs> if it's 50 yards wide, like you're probably not going to miss many. Yeah. But like when it's 20, like Northwoods, you didn't miss any fairways. And it's those are 25, 30 yard wide fairways. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good couple of days, I guess. <laughs> the, those hickories don't go offline. Yeah, dude, you were striping that thing. It's yeah. crazy. It's, I mean, I'm, I might just play hickories from now on. I'm over, over the real golf ball. So if, uh, say, uh, you found everything there was to find on Mackenzie, like tomorrow, you had everything. What, what would be the next project? I've kind of already started it in my mind, but it would be um, a way to connect uh, golf historians together um, to share information. You know, you start talking with somebody and they're looking into one thing or another. And, and um, you know, even though I try to stay to the Bay Area, I've got a lot of stuff from all over the East Coast and even in England and um, Scotland. I, don't, I have never been able to draw a line and say I'm going to stop. But um, to be able to share that information um, and help other guys that are or other people that are looking into it, there's there's a wealth of information, and you know you don't know the connections are so small with early you know early golf stuff, um, who was working with whom and what courses they were working at. We're only privy to a very small amount of that information based off of where we're gathering it from, from newspapers or correspondence in the clubs. I mean. Up until a couple of years ago, we didn't even know, you know, uh, Herbert Fowler was mentioned as being out here in the early 20s. Um, and then uh, Vernon McCann was brought in a, a year before McKenzie almost to the day to look at the, the course. Um, and that was very interesting because I've done all my research through newspapers and magazines in the Bay Area here, and there was never a mention of that. I've never seen one mention of that. So it just it really opened up my eyes to, you know, seeing something like, you know, I could speak to Lake Merced, you know, Lake Merced, I know of three architects that were being interviewed or looked at, and it was um, Willie Watson, Herbert Fowler, and Willie Locke. And Willie Locke ended up getting the job, which when you, you think about the other two gentlemen that have been in the business, and I mean, Willie Locke caddied, for Herbert Fowler when he was a kid. So for him to get that job, it was it was a pretty big thing for him. Mm-hmm. But there we have the story, but yet there's we who knows, they may have had somebody else in there. I guess you would be you would be the perfect person to ask about this. What what do you think about the whole Cypress routing about, you know, some people talk about maybe Seth Rayner routed it, some like, you know, other people say no way. What are your thoughts? Well, um, it's a it's an open ended question. Still, I mean, there's been a lot of talk with the Rainer folks and the McKenzie people, and I mean, just about anybody that wants to throw their their name in the hat. You know, we definitely can see. I, I 
there's a uh, A.D. Mills took a photograph of the 16th green in 1925 um, with a flag on it. And then, um, so that's Rainer, Rainer doing the routing. And he, we can definitely say that that was the green location that he decided on. Um, and then there's another flag on the rock outcropping just behind the current 18th tee that they were going to build a bridge to. So yeah. they, some people want to call that the McKinsey bridge, but it really, you know, the it, was, it was more of a Rainer bridge because he was out there. Man. He had the flag. Somebody put the flag out there for him. I'm sure he didn't put it out there, but, um, you know, and there was changes, you know, Robert Hunter jr. Um, that was one of his, he, he kind of cut his teeth here with Jack Fleming. Um, the club here didn't want, uh, Hunter jr. To get the work by himself. Cause he hadn't really, he was pretty young to mm-hmm. say the least. And, uh, but he went in there and, you know, he got in trouble for a little bit of the work that they did, but they rerouted a couple of the holes to make room for the 17 uh, mile drive. It'd be very interesting. I mean, you know, you don't get that chance very often to see how two different architects, you know, especially a natural relying on the beauty golf course that are the beauty of the land with McKenzie and then Rainer kind of, you know, the whole engineer aspect, but engineering with some reliance on the beauty, um, you know, Fisher's Island is a good example. Yeah. Those would be two really cool, uh, like architect maps to kind of look at and compare and say like, you know, you never know, maybe, you know, maybe they were both very similar. So we got a Rainer nut and a McKenzie nut sitting next to each other. I want to know from each of you what your favorite thing about the other architect is. So Sean, your favorite thing about Rainer and Zach, your favorite thing about McKenzie. Lido, the Lido course, you know, just the engineering feat that they went, went out after. And, uh, I just wish he had said more and written more or had, you know, that's, that's another treasure trove another that thing. somebody needs to find, huh? Yeah. I, there's not much out there. I mean, I know Tony Piapi's he's out there looking and finding some things, but, uh, you know, that would be amazing if, his diary would return up or something, but that's just me dreaming. I'm always dreaming, trying to think of the possibilities, but, uh, yeah, for me, I'm kind of turning into a McKenzie nut, you know, we're on a nice little road trip here, but, uh, I mean, it's, it's easy to go with, you know, the bunkering is just like out of control, not only the way it looks, but, you know, just bunker placement and, just how it all ties together, kind of the the whole layering aspect of everything is just out of control. There, there are so many good ones. I mean, the I think I've come to realize the most beautiful bunkers in the U.S. are in California between Thomas Bell, Mackenzie, and Hunter. It's pretty outstanding work. Yeah, I mean, it's the there's definitely. Um, a California feel to it by definition of it being in California, but, uh, <laughs> literally, <laughs> but to, to get to a point, um, McKenzie was already starting it in doing some of that work. And if you look at some of his later work prior to coming to California, you can see him kind of putting it together. 
but one aspect in you know the research I've done is how far did it get east? And there was a couple different architects that were actually in um, Michigan. I'm can't I'm drawing a blank on their name, uh, but one golf course in particular that's seminal in how the bunkering, the original bunkering. If you look, there's a great picture in Golfdom uh, magazine on the cover in 1930 or 31, and it it looks just incredible. But you're looking at it and you're like is that seminal? And you're like, of course it is. It's got all the palm trees in the background and whatnot, but what was going on to, to have that happen? Why were those bunkers designed there? That's the question I have. And obviously Dick Wilson did all this stuff to, and they were, they've been changed. And, um, I haven't been to, I haven't been there to see the work that Corin Crenshaw has done yet, but it's interesting in that, you know, in the research I've done, I've got Bobby Jones, out for the 1929 U.S. Amateur. And just in a short little column, they asked him one-word comments about the golf courses he was playing or had played. And it was Pasatiempo, Riviera, L.A. Country Club, San Francisco, Pebble, and Cypress Point. And um, I'm going to mix them up a little bit for sure. But, uh, you know, Sporty was Riviera. Um, Pebble Beach was he went a little wordy and he said, um, not as good as I thought it was going to be, or I was told or something. And, uh, LA country club, um, was, was sporty again. I think he used that twice, but the kicker was when he got to Cypress point, the way he described it kind of set the tone for his thinking, um, you know, very early on that he was probably going to have McKenzie there for his course. And Cypress point was very simply a course I wouldn't mind having in my backyard. (laughs) So I'm wondering if the work that Ross did at at Seminole had some correlation of him trying to feed off of McKenzie's work and style. But that's just me asking a question, trying to figure out why that style went that direction because the bunkering is nothing like Ross's bunkering. So why did that happen there? I know that... Hunter was out there, and Hunter and Ross were very close with their Pinehurst days. Um, so that's a mystery that I would like to figure out, or you know, maybe somebody out there's looking for something to research and somebody can, might be listening. Yeah, somebody might know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, so if if you could, if there's one, you know, say we're going to say non-living architect that you could have just all of their work they did erased. <laughs> Never. <laughs> you could remove all of it from the world. Which one would it be? Non-living? Non-living. We're, we're going to keep it friendly here. Oh, my gosh. Come on. <laughs> this else. is the fried egg. Um, uh, I mean, I would, I would answer in the opposite. One architect that we don't have anything nearly enough of that we need to know more of is um, William Langford. Because, I, I mean, no matter the work that those guys were doing, there's, there's a handful of guys that, you know, weren't up to snuff with the other guys back in the day. But um, I'd, I'd almost rather have their course than some of the guys that are living. Um, some of the, their work... 
in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. That's just a whole different flavor. I, I like the old school flavor. I mean, golden age is golden age to me. But uh, William Langford, he, I mean, after seeing Lasonia and some pictures of his other courses, I can't get, I mean, if it's McKenzie and then it's, it's William Langford for me pretty quick. Yeah, Langford is a victim of, of a lot of bad renovations too. people that just didn't understand the bold contours and the idea of of green that's unpinnable or you know these big slopes and giant scale it's i'm lucky i get i i'm in like langford central in chicago so i've seen a lot of his stuff and he is definitely underappreciated over you know yes it's uh so you want to uh, do some overrated, underrated? If we're at that point already. <laughs> I got one, uh, Hickory's. Underrated. What about uh, overrated, underrated uh, Pebble Beach? It's For me, it's overrated. And can I answer to Absolutely. why? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, this for me and you know, Chris Dahlheimer, uh, I have this conversation with him all the time. Just how and it's it's not. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on him. I I just enjoy talking with him about it. Um, just the size of the greens, um, and it's become it's that the shifting baseline, and it's also how the golf course has become defined by how small the greens are. Um, another golf course is Brookline. Uh, Brookline is defined by really small greens. Um, I've got an article from 1923 or something that their greens were huge compared to what they have now. But the landforms have changed um, uh, with the work that's been done over the years. But being able to look at the old pictures, and you know, a lot of work's been done at Pebble. Um, but Egan's work in, in 28 to get it ready for the amateur um, was awesome. You know the, the 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 faux dunes and the width and bringing all the fairways over closer to the ha- I mean to the ocean. I mean they were pretty. They were moved over. I've got some really cool sketches by a, a golf pro at a Olympic club um, that shows where the old fairways were and where they moved them to. And it was they were playing it safe um, for a long time there. But uh, Pebbles, you know. Th- it's a great it's a great place, but um, those greens I would love to see them bigger and the fairways too. Yeah, some of those uh, some of those old pictures that have been popping up on Twitter the last you know two three months of you know six seven nine eight ten those holes kind of on the coast at Pebble just look out of control how cool they were. Yeah, I mean it's I mean I've got a couple different. I've got like three or four different write-ups on all the changes that he made. I mean, it's just Egan, he gets lampooned a little bit for um, uh, Eugene, you know, with all the work that wasn't so good. But uh, what he did there was really good. One of Chicago's finest. (laughs) Yeah. Olympian, Exmoor member. Don Holton, shout out Don Holton. He's done a lot of, uh, he's a great historian. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, Egan is, he was a precursor to Bobby Jones. You know, he he took the game by storm and, you know, he was a flogger 
I mean, he hit the ball a long ways. He just didn't know where it was going. But he could recover. And uh, I think it was the 04, 05 open, or amateurs that he won. Um, Chicago and somebody else. He won the Olympics, too. No, he came right. in second. Second. In the yeah. Olympics. You know what was interesting to hear about what he was mentioning about Pebble kind of before they changed it for the USAM? You know, a lot of those fairways kind of way off the, the cliffs and stuff kind of reminds me of uh, Tory. Tory. Yeah. Sad that's, deal. Got to use the, uh, got to use the natural hazards, right? They're the most intimidating thing you could put on a golf course is an ocean cliff. <laughs> yes. That's like 500 feet. Yeah. That's probably like <laughs> the best hazard and the most, the best way you can intimidate someone to play away from the ideal line. Right. It seems like Torrey Pines, it, it's like, so it's almost too easy to put a good golf course out there that it's so sad to see what it is with how easy it could be unbelievable. What do you think about that? Well, for me, for me, I played it um, a couple of years ago now and uh, the setup was what I was having a hard time with the setup. I mean, the rough was too long. It was just, it was set up for you, <laughs> not for me. And, uh, and again, you get a lot of people going out there for that. But yeah, I mean, it just felt like it was there. There was a lot of potential out there. So one of the municipalities' big pushbacks on width is always maintenance costs going up. I always say, well, you could, you're probably going to have more rounds to combat that because people are going to get around faster and they're going to play more. Like. What kind of maintenance costs, say say you were going from 25 to 40, increase would you see? Well, it depends on the area of the country you're in. I mean, if you go back east, they're gonna, their fungicide budget's going to go um, double. But uh, for us out here, I mean, you, know, you guys set us some um, snow mold on our fairways. We don't really, it's very minimal. Uh, we'll have it and we'll, we won't treat it. But, um, you know, it's just another, it's a different mower mowing the grass. It's, I mean... It, the, the coughs off the, as you're saying the cost will offset itself to some degree by having more people out there to enjoy it and to get them around the course a little quicker because they're going to be able to find their ball or you know it's just an easier walk you know if they stayed wide you wouldn't see car paths inside of uh bunkers <laughs> that true that is what, true what, what's your biggest pet peeve <laughs> Just cart use. Whoops. <laughs> I mean, Zach had a bad cart use today. No, I, I don't think it was bad. I think we just needed it. Uh, we needed the, uh, you had the drone in there. It was like, you didn't want to have to carry the camera around. I was doing it more for you, honestly. <laughs> I didn't want to ride. I, I, I mean, for me, it, I make, when you get out to play golf, I mean, the whole point is to get out and enjoy being outside, enjoy the camaraderie with your fellow golfers. You get behind the wheel, and it's just you might as well be on the on the one hundred and one. You know, you you're turning the radio stations on your phone, texting somebody. You know, it's true. Just drop it. You know, get out of the cart and just walk and enjoy. You know, take a caddy or take a four bagger, and you know, put four bags on the cart and have have a couple people walk and and just push them a little bit. 
I've got a member here that I, I'm always giving him a hard time, but uh, it's it's really fun when when I see him and he's walking. He's like, "I'm over here walking. See me?" You know, it's but it's it's trying to change the culture. And you know, Cal Club is you know probably the embodiment embodiment of that culture change. And it's not an easy culture change. I think Thomas Bastis, when he was still there, he tweeted out a picture of just. Uh, a member event I don't know if it was a member guest or whatnot but it was all walking bags and you just don't see that um, when you have an outside event I mean it's let's get in the cart and go play golf and drive around and you know for me it's the experience no matter how many times I play golf which I haven't played a lot um, just a lot of things going on um, raising three girls in the Bay Area working um, I just don't play as much but uh when I do, it's going to be walking and and uh, with some good company. It really is amazing how much more enjoyable golf is when you walk. Like, I mean, I even noticed it today. I'm sitting there, you know, texting and looking at Twitter. And all you guys are back there talking. And then I get up to the ball and sit there for like two or three minutes waiting for everybody, you know, and all you guys are just talking about how cool all the features are, looking at everything. And I'm like, gosh, I should have walked. But, like, it's so bad in Utah. There's not one golf course that promotes walking. Like, not one private club, not one public place. It's like cart ball everywhere. Yeah. It sucks. And, and it's really easy to promote it instead of, you know, somebody comes into the pro shop and, you know, I'm going to play 18 holes. Oh, are you going to walk today? I mean, usually it's the opposite. Are you going to take a cart? I mean, we just just need to simply change <laughs> the so conversation or, and walk. What kills me is the places that have the cart included in the rate. You know, like our rate's $60. With a, it, it comes with a cart, cart included. It's like, what? why would you do that? I think, you know, I got on this conversation with my dad the other day who is in that side of the business and... Uh, he kind of talked about it's that that revenue, you know, it's the, the the pro shop, the pros wanting to make a couple extra bucks by by getting the carts, you know, the cart money. Yeah, and just sad. There's the flip side of cart paths and ropes and signs. I mean, especially out here where we're it's such a beautiful property, and you know, one of the things we're trying to do is illuminate signs and and ropes, but there's still we have outside play on some Mondays, and um, it's the carts that will just end up going anywhere um, if you don't put the ropes up. I mean, there's new technology with the GPS and all that, but it all costs money. And uh, um, just walking, it's good for your health. I mean, we have a we have a gentleman here that's in his. I mean, he's 98. Um, I thought he was 95, but uh, not a big difference there. But he plays 18 holes. And then he'll jump on a cart and play another nine. Jeez. So for the, it's good for your health. So 10 rounds, Northern California. So we're going to take, we're going to say from kind of the Pebble, Cypress, Monterey, North. How are you, you get 10 rounds. How are you splitting them up? You can do multiples at places. Uh, this is an exercise I do. Occasionally, uh, I, I kind of keep it to, to the Bay Area because I don't want to throw Monterey in it. But I would only play Cypress. Are we talking 10 times in one year or just? You get 10 rounds. 10 rounds. 
Um, I would still, I will say I will play Cypress once. Okay. And just because when I go out there, I'm going to, it's going to be that moment that I'm there. And if I play it more than once, then I'm not going to, it's not going to be, I'm taking advantage of it. Um, San Francisco's in there. Um, Meadow Club, Claremont. Um, I guess they'll have to be multiple times, but uh, you know Monterey Peninsula. I have yet to see the Dunes course, so I'll throw that in there. Even I would, I was excited that there was some possibility of it that they might have gone Rainer with it, um, but that kind of obviously fell through. You know, Pacific Grove, the back nine. I would play that twice and just skip the front um, with the houses. But um, you know, Presidio is fun for the for the challenge of the hills and the history of the course with the property being um, golf on that property since 1895. Um, I, I would lose count. I already lost count. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, you know, Claremont for me, I, I I would always say ten ten rounds of golf just in, in the Bay Area, and it would be you know about six times at Meadow three times at San Francisco and then one at Claremont. I really like Claremont, the crossing holes, the history. Um, it doesn't have to be long to be fun and it's challenging. Um, so I would say one of the cooler things like we learned this week, uh, that wasn't today was how we learned that the Presidio was the original S you know, San Francisco golf club. And then they moved to a place Ingle, and then the, Inglewood. Then they moved again. Ingleside. Yeah. yeah. Then yeah. they moved again, and Cal Club bought Ingleside. The second one. The second, you know, the second go around, and then found another place and built it. So at one time, that Ingleside was Cal Club and, and SF. And it was almost. Cool. And it was almost Olympic Club. Dang, that would have been sick. So Olympic Club was looking at the second course, and they ended up buying the Lakeside property. Um, golf course which had just been built and they made a bunch uh, quite a few changes to it so there was quite a jumble and it didn't help that Ingleside the old course and the new course I mean they were so close to each other it's it makes it a challenge to uh, do some research on it and figure out which course they're actually talking about yeah Um, you know San Francisco is that was probably one of the courses I did my most research on because you would look at the course ratings you know, the top 100s, and Golf Digest would say it was designed, I mean, it opened, it was a Tilling Aston Open in 1918. And then Golf Week would say it was 1921 or 20. And somebody else would say another date. And I'm like, wow, you would think somebody would have this figured out by now, What when it opened and who designed it. And uh, I got, in, I got inter- interested in the history of it and... Um, for me, you know, I try to identify the architects and the, the evolution of a golf course and the importance of um, not sticking to what becomes mythology, um, which is in some ways rooted in facts, but it gets bigger and bigger um, um, to build up the stature of a certain club. And uh, it happens all over the place. It, it doesn't matter what course it is. But, uh, you know, San Francisco, the first you know the first property, 1895. Um, I can't say the the with accuracy the the original architect, but it played over just 
the first couple holes right there off off the clubhouse. Um, all nine holes played over um, nine, ten, and eighteen today. Um, and then they moved due to um, the the use of the property as uh, the training grounds for the for the military. They moved to um, the the second Ingleside course, and uh, I believe I have the architect of the course, but I I need to get another verification. But it was a uh, one of the, uh, John Clark who had two sons that would go on to be golf pros. But uh, and then they moved and opened up the, the current course in uh, February of 1918, and it was designed by three members. So. And it kind of got lampooned in the same way that Pebble Beach did when it first opened. There was quite a bit of criticism over the quality of the links, and uh, um, some changes were made even before Tillinghast was there, to the point that, you know, what we see on the front nine was drastically changed before Tillinghast even made changes to the course. Um, And then Tillinghast was brought in in uh, the end of 1919 and 20. And he had a plan drawn up. Um, and this is the same time Herbert Fowler was in the area. So it's really interesting, the dichotomy of in – and Rainer was there in um, 1918. He actually stayed at the clubhouse at San Francisco. I knew I felt it. <laughs> <laughs> and have you guys seen did – you, did you guys play Olympic Club already? Uh, we we played gonna, the Cliffs course. Okay. Did We're you gonna, see the routing map? Have you seen his routing map for – Rainer's routing map? Someone posted it. Uh, I've seen it a little bit, but we didn't look at it the other day. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Is it in there? Yeah, it's in there. We missed. We yeah. missed the boat there. Would you say, uh, I got one more overrated, underrated, San Francisco Golf Club, overrated, underrated? Um, it's um, Or properly rated. Properly rated. Um I feel I'm middle of the road on that one. I mean, I feel like um, there's I, I know I know it more from a historical standpoint. I love you know they've they've added some bunkers that you know Tillinghast had taken out later on. Um, again, for me, the greens feel like they need to be a little bigger. Uh, the fairway width is awesome out there. Um, my favorite tee shot is number one. I mean, it's mega width, mega width. It's, you know, it's, it's close second to, uh, St. Andrews on width. <laughs> um, I haven't measured it, but, uh, it can't be wider than that, but, um, it's a special place. Yeah. And I mean, you know, with, you know, it, it, you're drawing a, a fine line on honoring all the work that's been done out there. And, but at the same time, you're nervous and are we going to make it better? Or are we compromising something? And you don't want to compromise anything, especially at San Francisco Golf Club. It's it's that special of a place. When you walk out there, um, it just gives me the chills. Um, on most days, it does give you the chills, but uh, depending on how much fog's there. But uh, it's, I think it's right where it needs to be. And you know, they they're still making changes to it. They the, the fourth hole, they've made some adjustments to it. The reef hole. Um, you know, they got, yeah, I mean, I'm glad they, they went back to the original routing, um, 
where they, the Harold Sampson routing got changed back, 13, 14, and 15. Um, that's just me being a historian. But, uh, Samson. Samson really loved the dogleg, the tree-lined dogleg, huh? He worked those pretty hard. But sh- <laughs> shout out to the Dokito for bringing it back, right? I think Tom Doak did the work, yeah, right? I think so, yeah. 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 Good job. Yeah, that that little green uh, bunkering there is phenomenal. I think it's uh, and the the front line, uh, front nine topography is pretty yeah. unbelievable. I definitely, for me, the front nine is is great out there. Just the the variety of shots and you know the twelfth is another great hole um, out there. I love the tee shot and the the challenge of uh, getting the the second shot figured out. Would you go front nine SF, back nine Pasa if you could put two Bay Area be pretty nine, solid. <laughs> nines together? Yeah. Can't wait to see Pasa tomorrow. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. Um, so uh, I guess the last un- overrated underrated would will be yardage finder guns and finders. Range finders. Range finders. <laughs> Overrated. Um, I'm kind of from, I'm just old school. I just will stand up and I'm going to, I'm going to just look at it and gauge it. And uh, I think it, it, for, you know, some of the stuff that we have out here and some of the other courses, the McKenzie courses where he's visually challenging you um, to know the yardage kind of defeats some of that. But, um, you know, everybody wants every advantage they can get, and that seems to be one that has struck a chord with people, either on their watch or, um, or whatever device they want to use, the sprinkler head or, or what have you. And from a pace of play standpoint, I, I think there's some benefit to it, but we're not addressing the other benefits, which we've already talked about, having, you know, more more width in the fairways and less rough and. You know, green speed. I, I, I just keep harping on those because I think those are really important. And we get back to those simple things. We, you know, the time that we gain from using a, a, yard, a yardage finder is it's not a big deal. It's the, the other things that uh, we need to do to make golf more enjoyable. We don't need it to have a – we don't need 12-inch holes and we don't need to play foot golf. Um, you know, they can if they want, but uh, there's – we just need to get back to what really, you know, the biggest boom in golf was the 20s. Uh, I don't, I, I don't fall into the uh, idea that Tiger Woods um, was all. He did a great thing for golf, but I think he kind of ushered in a more consumer-based golf in thought and uh, you know, cart golf and you know. What shoes am I going to wear? Tiger proofing. And tiger proofing. You know, I mean, me and Andy talk about it a little bit. I think they got the whole tiger proofing thing so wrong. You know, it's so like he's wrong. such a he's such a long hitter, and he was hitting it by everybody, and and he was a power player, and so they they wanted to push the tees further back, and they wanted to make the bunkers more in play for you know longer hitters. But it's like all they should have done to tiger proof courses is like make courses shorter and and wider and the exact opposite 
Yeah, I mean, we just keep seeing the yardage go up. And, you know, one of the things I've looked at is U.S. Opens and how they've changed um, the first course over seven. The first course at 7,000 yards was in 1937 at Oakland Hills. And it would be 60 years before they got to 7,200 yards. And then all of a sudden, in the last 21 years or so, what did we hit, 7,800? We're pushing 8,000. So right? <laughs> the, the, the golf, has, it's changed that dramatically in such a short period of time. And they, they use these numbers where they talk about the average yardage has gone up 0.2 yards on certain tours and gone down on the others by 0.2. If you do the math, I mean, you should add about three yards in the last 15 or so years. I think it's 14 years since Shinnecock hosted the last uh, U.S. Open. Um, they added 453, if, if I remember the number right, 450-ish yards to a golf course. They've added a par four. Yeah, it's long. It's I, a lot uh, more. I played there last year uh, from the U.S. Open tees, and it's uh, it's definitely a big boy course, so yeah. it'll be interesting to see. It is awesome, though. That place is sick. Yeah, and, you know, the, the Corin Crenshaw did the work leading up to it, and they've widened the fairways. A lot. Mega a lot. width. And now they've kind of narrowed them down a little bit. I mean, as much as the USGA wants to say this is still wider than the previous U.S. Open, they still send a negative connotation by narrowing it. Um, they're still saying it's there's an issue with it being wide. And it's just, for me, it's a hang-up that a lot of people have. Um, just this notion that golf has to be hard or a challenge or it can't be easier because we cut down these trees. We don't want to make the golf course easier. I mean, it's... Show me the scores. The other thing is, like, everybody's like, well, this era is so much more talented, so much better players. Like, their, you know, technology's better. Like, the game's not the same as it used to be. But we still have to hold on to the same score as, like, the sacred number. Like, oh, this is the – if if it's not close to par, it's not, a, it's not a real U.S. Open. It's like, well, the game has changed dramatically. So, like, why – would the par still be the same if everybody's better and technology's better? Yeah. I mean, even you're just talking about from the player standpoint. Yeah. I mean, you, you need to talk about what we're doing as superintendents yeah. and the technology that we bring to the game with our moisture meters, our, our new products of wedding agents. And um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing that has driven some of this as well. And so technology as a whole has really taken the game and pushed it in the wrong direction. And having just come back from the UK and Ireland and seeing some amazing golf courses and learning and seeing what they do over there. I mean, um, I met with, uh, did a course tour with Eamon, um, the links manager there at uh, Royal County down and just listening to what they don't do over there. Um, and they still provide wonderful course conditions and, um, we can be our own worst enemy, um, and we can. We have a lot of tools to do a lot of things, but at at some point, the game's gonna. We're already up against it with yardage and all these other things. But at the same time, 
the cost of maintaining courses, the, the dues that our members see, um, environmental concerns. I mean, there's all these in labor. I mean, labor, if you talk to anybody in our industry, labor is at our, I mean, we're running into robot mowers now. I mean, we're out there trying to figure out how can we maintain greens and do all this work, but with a, a, a labor force that's reducing. And um, in our association, our golf course superintendents in Northern California, we're trying to figure out how we can get interns to come out and work at some of our better courses. And it's, it's a challenge. I mean, the job market out there, um, it's just not, it's not what it used to be. And so we we're trying to get our, get our story out there and try to get some young people interested in our industry. And it's the, you know, we're working with our, the, G, the national golf course superintendents association, you know, trying to get that out there and go to job fairs at high schools and, and let people know that this is a, a viable um, job with a lot of uh, um, character building and, you know, you can take I mean, care of your family stuff. Yeah. It's pretty cool gig to just get to hang out on the golf course every day too. It's I mean, not bad. Yes. The early mornings, um, sunrises, sunsets. I mean, it's just, I, I, I don't know where I'd be if I wasn't doing this work. What's better light morning light or night light or like a sunset light for pictures. What do you think? For my personal schedule, the morning light is better. Um, but I love being up here late in the afternoons. The colors are, the, it just looks better. Um, looks drier, I guess it, it doesn't have as much luster when you have the dew and stuff. Which of your peers has the best Instagram feed? Like who's the, got the best photos of all the supers? I just I literally just got on and started using Instagram. Um, when you have six Twitter feeds, it's it's hard to to not be <laughs> anywhere else. But uh, Tully's got burners. I need burners. <laughs> but uh, oh I mean, I'm you know um, Clyde Johnson. Is that right, Clyde? Yeah. I really uh, he's well, um, you know him, uh, Clyde. Uh, Brian Palmer and uh, Scott Bavaco, they just wrapped up uh, yesterday their trip um, that we were on together with TurfNet um, over in the UK. And uh, they, they hung out late, and they were taking some amazing pictures of the golf that they were they were playing. Um, uh, they just need to keep doing that when they get home so we can see that what they're doing at their courses. Scott Vincent at uh, from Onwensia Club takes unbelievable photos. He's like a real pro photo photographer pros pro pros pro i'm working on it i i love I mean, you just see different things um and we're we're superintendents we know where the sun's coming up we know where it's going down we know which trees we don't want to have in the picture because we might be taking it out or or, or which we, path or we, you know let's take a picture of this tree before we take it out so we can show what it looked like before and after you can just, just get that photoshop game down where you can just get them all out of there well that's I uh, what is it? Google Earth. Before they changed you, because now it's free, right? Um, if you use one or the other, I can't remember which one. It'll flatten. If you go to Street View on the golf course, it takes out all the trees, but it keeps the elevations. So I found that out late one night, and I was up for a couple hours, <laughs> and I would just hit a tee shot 
stand in the fairway on one and just spin myself around, go to the green and spin myself around. And I did all 18 holes just looking for things that I don't normally see because of trees. And I went for, I went to different golf courses all around the area. And I mean, I'm, on my Google Earth, I've got all the maps that I put on, you know, all the different um, um, things we do for management of, of um, grubs and Bermuda grass and all that. And then I have a section where it's just golf courses I want to visit. And I just sit there and I'll study them. And, you know, I'm out there. I've got with the new Google Earth, now that's free, I can measure the fairway widths and to verify how things are going and, uh, you know, just see where we're at and be able to, you know, Shinnecock, I've, what I love is to be able to go in and, uh, cause I was trying to figure out what the yardage was to add to my, my, um, my, um, study of yardages. And, uh, I would go to the 2016, 17, find out where the T's are and then switch back to 2004 to see where they are in relation to what the T's used to be. And it's really fun to, to study and see how they did it or, you know, it, it, in some cases, it's a lot of work. They cut trees down and moved, uh, I think it's on two or three, maybe it's two. You know, the team moves over, gets closer over to uh, um, to national a little bit. And, you know, it, again, the rhythm of a golf course for me is walking. You know, McKenzie had it right. You know, he, he, had, he did talk about elasticity in his golf courses, but he didn't build in for – how far the ball is going today. And, um, you know, what was it? Baltrazal, they were talking about, oh, it's great. You know, they didn't have to add any yardage to the golf course for this year's PGA. And it's, I'm sitting there going, well, do they have any room to add yardage? And they really didn't. And at some point, you know, we're, that's a, a long course, but we're going to start. We've already there's lost a, how many courses? a lot of long walks yeah. from the it's, green to the tee. And then you know, right. on yeah, I played the PGA there. It's yeah, it's a it's a big course. It's hard. Big ballpark. Big ballpark. It's just a lot of walking. I mean, in golf now, with the guy sitting the ball further, it it slows play down if you hit the ball as far as you do, because <laughs> you have to walk even further to get to the ball. It takes longer to walk that distance if it's another thirty, forty yards. So there's there's a factor there. So that's why, I mean, five-hour rounds. They're taking a long time right now. Yeah. Not good. Four hours and ten seconds over a shot. Four minutes and ten seconds. Four minutes. No, man, <laughs> four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Felt yeah. like that. Jeez. It can. Um, but, uh, yeah, how can people find Sean Tully? <laughs> um well, I got the one Twitter handle that I would point them to. A um, couple of them, I just I try to stay under the radar, and I think only a couple of people I know, a couple of people know those burners. Burners, yes, burners. Um, <laughs> He's just gonna but, come uh, out of the weeds with one of them one day. The one is my main Twitter feed is at Toll Fescue, um, and I've had Toll Fescue as a it was like my first um, um, email address back in school trying to figure out something. Somebody was just leaned over and he said, Toll Fescue is your Twitter, is your email address. And I was like, that's good. And I've just kept it with everything. But um, I 
that's mostly golf course architecture and just talking about golf and, you know, anything that really gets me going. But uh, um, I post for Meadow Club uh, and uh, and uh, our association for golf course superintendents and then the other burners I won't talk about. <laughs> Next podcast. Yeah. Just about the burners. Yeah. So thanks for coming on. Awesome day today. And um, yeah, everybody follow uh, Sean and start uh, walking off yardage uh, <laughs> uh, fairway widths. Please do. Thank you very much. It was it was great to finally have you out here and, and do this podcast. I know we've tried to do it quite a few times. Yeah. Well, hopefully the first of many. So. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.